So last week, Chris Snow, a former writer for the Boston Globe and Minneapolis Star Tribune, who went on to become the assistant general manager for the Calgary Flames, died after a lengthy battle with ALS. Chris was 42 and leaves behind his wife, Kelsey, and their two children, Cohen and Willa. And the Snow family, they've just blown me away these last few years with their courage and their optimism and their steadfastness. Mostly with their desire to make the ALS journey real and tangible for as many of us as possible. And it was to my great shock and gratitude that Saturday night, while attending the Ohana Music Festival in Dana Point, California, I heard the great Eddie Vedder say this. You know, while, while he was hanging on, they, they were able to take some healthy pieces of him and save four people. So this goes out. This goes out to Kelsey, Willa, and Cohen. We're sending energy to the Northeast from the West Coast. And this is for Chris. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Jason Reed, the Anscape NFL writer and the former Washington Post and Los Angeles Times staffer. This is episode number 331. Let's sling some yang. All right, Jason. Here's where I want to start. I'm uh, I'm staring at an article from April 6, 2022, and it says Anscape reaches multi-year extension with senior NFL reporter Jason Reed. And the lead is Anscape, the Walt Disney Company black media platform dedicated to diverse stories of black identity, has signed senior NFL writer Jason Reed to a multi-year extension. Reed will continue as the platform's lead journalist, blah, 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 blah. And I remember first seeing you when I was a obscure, shitty Sports Illustrated writer covering baseball, and you were the Dodgers beat writer for the LA Times 20-something years ago. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever think there'd be an age where your signing and multi-year extension would be announced on a website? And what does that say about what journalism has become or where we are in life? Wow, man, that's a multi-part question, and it deserves a thoughtful multi-part answer. Uh, first of all, you know, I remember when we met many, many years ago, um, I was in the Dodgers beat and you weren't some scrub. I mean, you were an up and coming guy. Uh, I don't know. You had either already or you were on the verge of upending Major League Baseball with this piece you did on John Rocker, which was quite frankly, I, I, I don't remember where I was when I first read it. I mean, at the time, you know, Sports Illustrated, everybody aspired to work at Sports Illustrated if you were a, sport, if you were a sports writer. Right. And um, I've been reading Sports Illustrated since my dad had got me a uh, subscription. When I think I was like eight. And so I remember reading the piece and I thought to myself, well, this is probably the most impactful thing I've ever read in, in, in just in terms of sports. So, um, you know, I, I'm not going to let you get away with that. You know, I was a scrub type thing. OK, yeah. that's that. Um, no, I, I never thought that it would get to a point where I would have a press release written on me, you know, old school people. And I and I. I think we're both dinosaurs in this respect. Yeah. You never wanted to be part of the story. 
you wanted the story to be the story. And journalists and journalism, the trade, it's not supposed to be about us in terms of the people who are doing the reporting. It's supposed to be about the subjects. So, um, no, I never, ever envisioned a day when I would have a press release written on me. I never envisioned a day where, you know, I, I would sign a contract to do a job. You know, when I got out of journalism school, when I went to USC, um, I had an in, in, internships, you know, just like a lot of other people. And then I worked at a, a small newspaper while I was uh, my senior year of college. I worked at a small newspaper. And then when I graduated, I got a job covering high schools at the LA Times. And, you know, quite frankly, I thought that that was the greatest thing in the world. And if I could have just stayed in that job for the rest of my career, I would have been thrilled. But, you know, the business changed. A lot of things occurred and uh, sports writers gained a much bigger platform through TV. And whether that's good or bad, that did occur. And hence, you have sports writers being signed to contracts and press releases are going out about it. So as far as what it says, I mean, clearly... There was a tectonic shift. I mean, this is not what, you know, old newspaper guys or, you know, old sports writers ever envisioned even being a possibility. I remember the first time I signed a contract and there was a a release about it and somebody called to talk to me about it. I was like, well, this is crazy, you know, but it's it's where we are. Wait, I just want to say um, June 16th, 1989, the news pilot. Yeah. Headline. (laughs) L.A. games have healthy mix byline. Jason Reed lead featuring more than 10,000 high school athletes scheduled to compete in 12 sports. This weekend's preliminary round of the 22nd annual L.A. games will begin Saturday at various locations and will culminate with championships at El Camino College, June 24th and June 25th. Jason, is that article in your clips package and do you send it out regularly? No, it it is notable, (laughs) but I will tell you, I do remember I do remember that thing. You know, I was I was at a uh, like I said, a small suburban newspaper chain. Uh, I don't even know if it still exists. The uh, the Daily Breeze, uh, the Copley newspapers, like they used to be owned by the San Diego Union Tribune. And I don't even know. I mean, I guess the Trib is owned by the Times now. But I remember that was one of my first assignments. And, um, you know, I was in journalism school and I got hired there. And man, you couldn't tell me anything. I thought like I was like the biggest like reporter on the planet, you know, I was getting to do this thing, but it's not in the clip package. I don't even have a clip package anymore. I used to, Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't know where it is anymore, but, um, you know, it, good times, you know, learning, learning how to do the job, you know, did you go through your phase that so many of us, certainly myself included went through where you were actually the cocky douchebag who thought you knew everything about writing? Well, let me, let me say this. I got put in the Dodgers at the LA times when I was 27 and like at the time, that was kind of unheard of because the LA Times used to have this structure where they had these regional newspapers, which are still the LA Times, but there was an Orange County edition and a San Fernando Valley edition. And these were like massive newspaper staffs, in, like independent of the Los Angeles Times downtown. When I got put on the Dodgers at 27, it was like just unheard of. You, know, you just didn't move up that quickly at the LA Times. And, um, my second year on the beat, I got, I don't want to use the word comfortable, but I developed a lot of sources by my second year and I started breaking some pretty major stories. And um, there was a phase, I will admit, where I was like, okay, I'm going to dominate this beat. And I definitely 
felt like I could do this. And I definitely felt like, I mean, the work, the work speaks for itself. You know, when, when, when you break a major story, that's not debatable. That's not subjective. It's like, this is what it is. And so, yeah, there was that, that stretch, but then um, it, it lasted a very short period of time because, you know, when you're covering a major beat and it's still the case today, like you could break the biggest story on a Monday and then on a Tuesday, somebody else can break the biggest story and then you're, you're chasing it. So, um, yeah, I was I was uh, definitely confident. The whole, I mean, I think I covered the Dodgers for like six years or seven years. I can't remember specifically, but I was definitely there was definitely a phase where I felt like, OK, um, you know, I'm, I'm on this, that type of thing. But again, I, I wouldn't say I was cocky as much as I was confident. I love getting into the nitty gritty a little. And you covered the Dodgers during a period I actually love. And. It's funny. I asked Bill Plasky about this when I had him on a few months ago, and he didn't have great stuff. And I'm hoping you do. Okay. One of my favorite figures in my era of covering baseball, because it was so kind of preposterous, was Kevin Malone, the Dodgers GM, who announced there's a new sheriff in town when he came along. And it didn't go great. What was it like covering Kevin Malone? You know, I had a great relationship with Kevin initially. I mean, he was the GM of the team, and he became the GM after Fox News Corp. Fox Group, you know, the Rupert Murdoch's company bought the team from the O'Malley family, you know, longtime stewards of the team who had moved the Dodgers West and, you know, they won championships. And, you know, I, I remember uh, the joke about the Dodgers under the O'Malley's was like the Dodgers are baseball's answer to the Denver Mint, meaning they just printed money. I mean, it was just it was just ridiculous. But you know, family ownership became more difficult. Mr. O'Malley sold the team to News Corp. Um, News Corp made a lot of very bad decisions around the Dodgers. And one of them was that they hired Kevin Malone to be the general manager. And, you know, I got along very well with Kevin initially because Kevin understood that the LA Times at that time was still the, the dominant thing in Los Angeles from the standpoint of like, you had the mayor of Los Angeles and you had, you know, other powerful politicians, but Everybody understood that the times drives everything. And, you know, Kevin was smart. I mean, I was a Dodger beat reporter for the LA Times. And, you know, he developed a relationship with me and with with Bill Plasky, who is still the lead columnist at time after times after all these years. But when things started going south in terms of the decisions they made, decisions Kevin made, the money Kevin spent, uh, the the players Kevin invested in, you know, whether you have a good relationship or not, like you got to do your job. And I wrote some things that Kevin didn't like. And I, and I understood that, you know, what I try to always explain to people going into a situation is like, look, we can have a good relationship, but at the end of the day, like I am a reporter covering the team. I don't work for the Dodgers. I, I, I have a job to do. And I, I don't buy this thing that reporters are objective, like, we all bring our background and our thoughts and, and the things we're not robots. So it's subjective, but what I strive to be was fair. And um, Kevin didn't like a lot of the stuff that, that I wrote. And there was one particular incident where we were in San Diego. It was, it was, it was a couple of years into Kevin's tenure and a source of mine from another team called to tell me that Kevin almost got into a fist fight with a fan sitting in the stand. And I was like, come on. Now, there, there are always levels of sourcing. And, you know, before you're going to run with something, you got to think about who's telling you. Well, the person who told me was another Major League Baseball general manager. 
Oh, wow. So it, it wasn't the type of thing where this was some, you know, some scout who heard it from another scout who heard it from another scout. Like this was a major league baseball general manager. So I started making some calls and I got the story corroborated. Three other very high up people in major league baseball told me. And so I called Kevin and I was like, Hey, I got to do this. Like I want to, you know, get comment from you. And he was upset about it. But anyway, the story turned out to be accurate. It's one of the things that led to his firing. I, I mean, I don't put all of the mess that occurred at that period, and it was a complete hot mess, but I don't put it all on Kevin. Uh, I mean, Kevin made a lot of bad decisions. And, you know, you you asked me before about, get, you know, being cocky. Kevin got that job and Fox had messed up so much by trading Mike Piazza, the Hall of Fame catcher who was, you know, this beloved figure with the team. And they it's like they were always chasing trying to win back the fans. And so they spent so much money. I mean, in, not in today's terms, but, you know, they signed Kevin Brown to this record setting contract, the pitcher, one hundred and five million dollars, which just shattered all of baseball's spending records. And the thing that just incensed people was they also gave his family the use of a private jet. Oh, yeah. Um, to go back and forth. And, you know, he signed this guy, this pitcher, Carlos Perez, who was just a guy who <laughs> was really out there. I'll just leave it at that. He he traded for this catcher, Todd Hundley, from the New York Mets, who was this power hitting catcher with the Mets. But he'd had this shoulder injury and he'd had surgery and it was like real dicey. Like, can this guy ever perform again? And then he struggled. So it was like, every, like I remember telling um telling the vice president of PR one day, we were uh, sitting in the press box and I held up the Dodger media guide to him. I said, this thing is useless right now. I said, like, like there is nothing in this that can help me do my job because all the things that I need to do my job involve the chaos behind the scenes. It was crazy, man. I mean, it was uh, after I covered the Dodgers, I, I, I was a national writer on college basketball for a while. I, I was a national writer on the NBA for a while. Then I went to cover the uh, Redskins or the Commanders for the Washington Post. So I've covered other beats, nothing like that that I had ever seen. And while I don't blame Kevin for all of it, he was central to all of it. Wait, so uh, you mentioned some good people here. Um, I remember when Kevin Brown signed, came over in 1999, the whole private jet. And what I remember about Kevin Brown is he was a miserable guy to cover, like for at least from a nationalist standpoint, he was just always scowling. He kind of had that Albert Bell thing going where you're like, I don't know, do I go up to this guy? Was he OK on a day to day? Or was he equally not fun? You know, as you know, when national guys pop into town, it, it can be real iffy with certain players. And that's that's across every sport. I mean, I've never covered hockey, but I would imagine it's the same in hockey. But I've covered basketball, football and baseball. My first interaction with Kevin was I, I had gotten a tip that the Dodge, we were at the baseball winter meetings and I had gotten a tip that that he had signed this massive contract. And then the Dodgers announced that he had, but the Dodgers said they weren't going to make him available until the following Monday. They wouldn't have a press conference at Dodger Stadium. Well, that was unacceptable to me because if this guy just signed the biggest contract in the history of North American sports, and they also gave him the use of a plane for his family, I got Kevin's number from someone and I called him. And he was pissed that I had the number, but then he gave me a really good interview. So I, I offer all that to say my relationship with him was a little different because I think he respected the fact that I was the only reporter to track him down before the Dodgers wanted this information out there. And we had a pretty good relationship. Let me let me back up. In as much as anyone in my capacity could have a good relationship with him, I had a good relationship with him. 
my relationship became more difficult with him when one of the Times columnists started to target him. And I mean, I remember he would say to me, you know, what's up with this? You know what? And this columnist really went after him and and it was a bad situation. Um, but but all through that, I had a I still maintained probably the best working relationship that anybody had with him. I would I would imagine among the beat guys. Uh, but yeah, he was difficult to deal with. There was no doubt about that. Would that certain columnist have a name that rhymes with Nihei Heimers? <laughs> yeah, it rhymes with that. Can I just tell you this one story? Please. In the old days, during batting practice, reporters could be in the clubhouses actually, you know, talking to players, doing interviews. Uh, from my understanding now, the clubhouses are closed during batting practice. Mm. Um, and if I'm wrong about that, please, somebody correct me. But that's what I, that's what I was told recently. So I had this thing set up with with Kevin. Um, I was working on some piece and I just needed him for a second. And he agreed to do it. And he was going to do it like midway through BP. Anyway, he goes back into the clubhouse because he's going to talk to me for this piece. And uh, TJ Simers is in there. Otherwise known as Nihei Heimers. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Otherwise known as that. And um he stood behind Kevin when Kevin was in his dressing stall looking for something. Like, I, I think he was looking for a glove or something. He's like, well, why don't you just pick one of them? Like, what's the big deal? It's me, he hates timers, whatever, you know, and, and, uh, and, and Kevin Brown. And he's literally standing maybe two or three feet behind him, kind of just going at him because he's taken so long to look for something in his dressing stall. And he wasn't like it wasn't like he was there to interview. It was just like he was there. Uh, he was just like there, and he was kind of I, I don't berating might be a little, a little too strong word, but he was definitely needling him that he was taking so long to find what he wanted to find in his dressing stall. And I just remember standing there thinking, "Oh boy, like I've never seen this before." Yeah. Um, well, needless to say, he didn't do the interview with me after this happened. Um, he was not happy. So yeah, stuff like that. I had TJ Simers on this podcast a while ago and I found him both fascinating and horribly unlikable. And he told, he told me about a time when he was covering the Broncos and he would wear a Raiders jacket to antagonize players. And I thought that's really not your job. Like that's really not your job. Are you as a beat writer ever allowed to say to Nihei Heimers, you know, you're really making it hard for me here. Could you kind of step back a little bit or no? Is that just not how it works? Can I tell you another story, please? Okay. So Kevin Malone, Back to him for a second. So they they acquired Todd Hunley, this power hitting catcher from the New York Mets, and he really struggled, which wasn't surprising because he had this shoulder issue, mm -hmm. and he had this contract option, and it was at the time it was a big it was a big number. Nowadays it would be whatever, but at the time it was a big number. So I had two sources in the organization who would know. Tell me, we were on a, I'll never forget, we were on a road trip in, uh, in Milwaukee. We were, they were playing the Brewers. And I had two sources confirm for me that the team had decided not to pick up the option because his shoulder, he, you know, he wasn't performing well and it was the shoulder. Now, the reason this was a really big story was Kevin had basically put himself on the line with bringing in Hunley. Because medical people with the team had questions about it. The fact that they weren't going to pick up the option, it means Kevin screwed up. There was no other conclusion you could draw from it. He put himself on the line. He said, this guy's going to be a star. 
And then for them to determine they weren't going to pick up the option, it was like, no matter how you tried to parse it, it was not good for Kevin. So I write the story and all hell broke loose because people wanted to know, well, who told Jason this? Like, how could he find this out? Nobody denied it publicly. Behind the scenes, they were pissed that it came out, but no one denied it publicly. So the next day, TJ wrote this column, basically trying to out my sources. His thing was like, well, who told me this? And I just remember, like, we were on the road, and this is, this is in the days where you got a clip package. You didn't just jump on Google, okay? Like, each morning, the, the, somebody from the PR staff would hand you a packet of the clips. And one of the clips was TJ's column asking, you know, who told me this? It wasn't just like he raised the question. If I recall correctly, and this is 20 years ago, so I may not remember exactly, but if I recall correctly, he tried to investigate or deduce who actually told me this. And like he raised possibilities in the piece, like who could it have been? Well, needless to say, I was like stunned. Like I had never seen anything like this before. And plus this, we, you know, this guy worked at the paper with me. I didn't say anything, but other members of the staff, including Bill Plaschke, and I, and I will always be appreciative appreciative of him for this. Went to the to to Bill Dwyer and was like, "You can't, he, this can't happen." Bill Dwyer was a legendary sports editor of the LA Times. Yeah. Bill just was like, "You can't do this to beat guy. Like you just you can't do this." So you asked, "Would I be able to speak up?" I mean, I guess I could have, but I I also didn't want to wind up in his column as having spoken up about it. Because I just felt that at that point, I had a job to do. My job was to write about the Dodgers, to report on the Dodgers as well as I could for the Los Angeles Times. And, you know, circling back to like the other thing you asked about, you know, getting to the point in this business where reporters are, you know, have contracts and press releases. I didn't want to take a chance on becoming a bigger part of the column. Right. But, um, yeah, other people did bring it up. It is what it is. I feel like as baseball writers, we're always we certainly were spoiled with access. I mean, baseball is a very hard, a lot of grumpy guys back in the day, but baseball was a open access world. You leave the LA Times, you go to the Washington Post, you start covering football. Football in many ways seems like the exact opposite. When you're covering the NFL and you're jumping from baseball, what sort of adjustment is that as far as just even getting to guys? It's so much uh, more difficult to get established because, you know, you can't, the thing about baseball that was so great at the time, and I don't know about it anymore, but you can sit in the dugout during batting practice and talk to the to the coaches and to the players. You could you could be in the clubhouse. You know, you were always around, and it's 162 games. And so, you know, if there are guys who think you're okay and they 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 respect your work ethic, they're going to tell you things. You know, and and it's just because of the the access was so much greater when I started covering the NFL for the Washington Post. You have what's called open locker room. It's just, you know, it's, it's a, I don't know, like a 45 or 50 minute, if that period where reporters can be in the clubhouse, but players can go hide in the training room or they can, um, or, you know, they, they just are, are somewhere else and they're not at their locker. You can't talk to them pregame, obviously. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're warming up. The locker room is open after the games, but everybody in the world is in there then. What you learn is, is that if you're going to do things like, break stories and develop relationships. It really has to be outside of the, of the confines of the facility. 
you know, you get phone numbers, you you, you develop relationships with players or, and, and coaches and executives. Don't get me wrong. I worked the phones a lot when I covered the Dodgers, but when I started covering the Redskins, I remember my son was was just born and I was like, all right, I'm not going to be able to do this the way I did this other job. It's all going to be about the phones. And um, it all was about the phones. Yeah. You jump to the Redskins and you go from sort of this dysfunctional Fox owned Dodgers to this dysfunctional, dysfunctional, dysfunctional Daniel Snyder owned Redskins and the coaches. I mean, I can name there 8,000 coaches you went through just a turnover of weird big names and guys who came and went and the dizzying. And I'm actually kind of curious, like, is it more fun to cover chaos than it is to cover successful stability? Chaos definitely leads to bigger scoops if you can develop the relationships to get the scoops. As a beat writer, I've never covered an organization that has won a Super Bowl or a World Series or reached like the National Championship Series. During the time I covered the Dodgers, the Braves were going to to the World Series every year, you know, and I would come off the Dodger beat at the end of the season and I go cover the Braves. I don't know what it would what it had been like if like, you know, I worked in Atlanta covering the Braves at that time or, you know, if I covered the Patriots at the time I covered the uh, the, the Redskins and the commanders now. But chaos and dysfunction, if you can develop the sources, you will get much bigger stories than, you know, exclusive scoops if you can get in with the right people. If you're covering like, you know, like the Chiefs, you know, you don't hear about many scandalous, like outrageous things with the Chiefs. All they do is win big. So is it more fun? During my beat writer days, I was a very aggressive reporter and I got a lot of stories that other people didn't get because I was aggressive and because I got in with the right people. And those stories would not have been present if I covered teams that won all the time. What's your best? I got this story. There's no way I should have been able to get this story. I got this story and I feel great about myself. Got this story moment. You know, this is going to come across the wrong way. We will not judge you on this podcast, Jason. Okay. But I can't just nail down one. What I would say is, is that on opening day back in 1998, Mike Piazza was, you know, locked in this brutal contract negotiation with the Dodgers. And I waited for everyone to leave the locker room. The the team was playing the St. Louis Cardinals on the road to start the season. And I waited out everybody, every reporter and um, every team member. And Mike Piazza was sitting at his locker. There was no one else in in the locker room. And I went up to him and and he just shredded the team. And the next morning in the times there was this massive headline the dodgers had lost the game the uh, starting pitcher ramon martinez had given up a grand slam and the headline was dodgers slam from both sides and i mean he shredded them back in those days again you wouldn't know about it unless the the newspapers moved the stories to the ap wire then the wire would put it out when i got to the stadium the next morning i mean next after i mean everybody was talking about it everybody back in la was talking about it and then another one which i was really proud of sean green the dodgers had signed him from the toronto blue jays he grew up in in orange county uh he went to tustin high he became the superstar with the toronto blue jays 
And then the Dodgers signed him to this massive contract. Well, I think it was in his second year, he was struggling, or his third year. He had he had a he had a rough first year, then he had a big second year, and then I think it was his third year. Anyway, I'm on the road in Houston with the team, and I get a call from a source of mine with the team, and they're like, you know, Greeny's shoulder is screwed up. I'm like, well, what do you mean? It's like, well, you know, don't tell anybody I told you this, but his shoulder is really screwed up. That's why he's not hitting right now. Someone else let me see something that confirmed that his shoulder was screwed up. And I went to him and to his credit, he did not lie to me. And the next day I wrote this story, this story that it was, it was stripped across the, the top of the LA times is that well, sports section that this guy has been battling the shoulder injury and he's probably going to need surgery. And like, that's why he's not been performing. That was probably the biggest story in terms of like just all hell breaking loose because like they knew I wouldn't write that story unless I unless I actually confirmed what was being said about what they did medically. So yeah, those are, those are two. I actually know Sean pretty well. We're uh, we're friendly. He's one of the few guys from my baseball writing career that I've maintained a friend with. Really nice guy. When you're a baseball writer, would you rather cover a Sean Green who is stable and kind of dependable, but he's not going to give you anything super exciting, but he's honest about it, or like a Gary Sheffield who's explosive and kind of crazy. And also a little erratic. Look, I love Greedy. He's such a good dude, as as you know. You know, I mean, he's not going to give you anything like Sheffield will. But like when I went to him that day, and he knew I had the medical stuff. Like he he's a stand up guy. He did. He could have lied to me. And if he would have told me, if he would have lied to me, it would have been real iffy for my editors to run that story. I didn't have copies. Somebody just let me see stuff. So it would have been real iffy. So I appreciated his honesty and he's a good dude. But the thing about Chef, like you didn't know what was going to happen every day. Like I remember this one spring training where he was pissed about his contract situation. And so he didn't show up. And like the team, he wouldn't talk to the team. But like I had his phone number and I had a pretty good relationship with him. So I was writing this stuff like every day. And everybody was like, just furious. Like, why is he talking to him? And, you know, we, we can't get a hold of him. He had finally told the team he would report. But he called me and told me that he wasn't going to report when he said he was going to come in one day earlier. So I had this whole story about him coming in. And like the other writers got to got to the facility, like, you know, nine o'clock. And my story was already up and he was in. So covering guys with both of those personalities is a lot of fun, but just fun in different ways. I just want to say in Gary Sheffield's, uh, I'm always a defender. After that John Rocker story came out, there are a lot of baseball players who are not very nice to me and kind of, oh, why are we going to talk to you? Will Clark, Kerry Wood, on and on. Long, very long list. I called the Dodgers. They wanted, SI wanted me to do a Sheffield profile. One of the publicists for the Dodgers said Sheffield did not want to talk to me, which I found weird. I went out to LA, went up to him. He's like, I got no problem. I'll talk to you. And I had one of the great interviews of all time. Kind of love that guy. Look, for better or worse, Chef just laid it on the line. I, I don't think in, in the whole time I covered him, like he ever, it, no matter what happened, he would he would talk about it. He didn't care. So, yeah. yeah, I love guys like that. Random one, 2015, Dan Steinberg column in the Washington Post. The Redskins, ESPN 980, and Jason Reed. Vindictiveness, <laughs> vindictiveness or incompetence? And long story short, you took a gig hosting a morning show for ESPN 980, which was owned by Daniel Snyder. Daniel Snyder, Bruce Allen, the uh, 
the at the time the team president also to just a note former former general manager of the Chicago Blitz of the USFL who helped me very much with my USFL book they were not fans of yours and you get hired to do this show and then you kind of get fired to do this show I think before you ever did the show what am I missing here very good synopsis um I never aspired to be a radio guy nothing against radio guys but I'm, I'm a journalist and I just I never aspired to do that the programming director of the station though came to me one day and he's like, look, you know, I want to start this morning show. Everybody tells me I need to get you on because you, you know, you're controversial. I was a columnist at this point. Right. I was no longer a big guy. I was a columnist. And um, just be candid about it. Like he made it so I couldn't say no. Like at this point I had two kids, like a college to pay for, sure. like, you know, I couldn't say no, but I said to him, I was like, dude, there's no way they're going to let you hire me. I wrote a column one time about Bruce Allen I think the kicker in the column was something like, there are some sons of famous NFL people who actually are competent and deserve their jobs. And then there are those like Bruce Allen. So I said, I said to this guy, I was like, there's no way you're gonna, they're going to let you hire me. They let him hire me. But before the show even went on the air, they said they, they weren't going to do it. Not already signed the contract. And my agent was like, don't worry about it. I was like, well, no, I, I'm going to worry about it because I mean, I, I this this is I wanted to do this thing. Then they they relented and they put the show in the air, um, but it was only like I think they only let it go for like a month, and then they fired me again. The great thing was that I had a contract, so that worked out very well in the end. But at the time, it wasn't a lot of fun. You know, I've got friends of mine at the Washington Post, which I which I had left at that point. I'd gone to ESPN to write as well. You know, I got friends of mine at the Washington Post again writing about me. I don't want to be the story, but but in that case, clearly I was the story or part of it. So yeah, it worked, it worked out really well in the long run. But while you're going through something like that, it's not, you know, something that you look forward to. I just want to say December 14th, 2014. The man who caused Redskins problems can't be the one tasked with solving them. Jason Reed byline for the Washington Redskins. The good news is that their embarrassing season is almost finished. But the bad news is that president and general manager Bruce Allen remains on the job. The thought of Allen continuing to chart the franchise's course is even scarier than watching Washington's weak offensive line or poor secondary, both of which collapsed again during Sunday's 24-13 loss to Giants. And yet another, this can't end soon enough performance. Washington produced only three points after halftime in a battle of teams competing to stay out of the NFC East basement. And best of all, best of all is the end to this column, which you wrote, although nepotism is rampant in the NFL, some sons of the game's most successful men have proved worthy of the positions they hold. And then there are those like Allen. That is a great kicker. And here's my question for you, Jason. Yeah. When you write something like that and you know you're going to run into Bruce Allen again, does that ever cause you to pull punches or be nervous about the next time you see the guy? Like, is that in your head the next time you see Bruce Allen walking down a hallway? No. And, and as a matter of fact, after I wrote that, you know, that was on a Sunday. So the next day is a Monday. I made sure I was at the facility bright and early. I made sure I was, like I said, I was in the press room early. I was, I was in the building early. The uh, PR people, I told them that I was going to write this. And if anybody needed to talk to me, I was there. When I became a columnist at the Post, the Washington Nationals had this player, Jason Worth, who was a big you know, acquisition for them. And uh, I wrote something very critical of him. And so the next night, I, I, you know, I went to the stadium and I was in the locker room post game. And, um, and he, he went at me and I went back at him. 
if you're going to write something like that, I'm making a distinction. I wasn't a beat writer at the time. I was a columnist. And it, it's a different thing. You're, you're, you're an opinionist. You're giving your opinion. If, but if I'm going to write something like that, I have to be willing to face the music. I did the same thing with the Dodgers. I mean, I, I got into it with many Dodgers general managers. If you report something as a beat writer and and it's accurate and they're angry that you wrote it, you show up. If you're a columnist and you offer an opinion and somebody's angry that you wrote it, you show up. I didn't worry about it. I just knew that, okay, I have to be present for them to have their say if they choose to. It's so interesting. I just wrote about something that happened the other day, and I mean no beef here, but there's a woman named Rami Bean, and she is the sports slash news director at Colorado CBS News Affiliate. Oh, I see where this is going. Yeah, I remember this. <laughs> and she did, just the other day, she posted a photo of her with Deion Sanders and her parents, right? And wrote, what an unbelievable blessing. Deion Sanders taking time out of his busy day and opening his heart to my parents. There's no limit to his kindness. A day we will remember forever. And then, and then, you know, she later wrote, tweeted, he's truly a gift to us all. And I asked you, Jason, what the fuck is going on here? Like what? I'm with you. Like John Rocker was able to chew me out after that story came out because I went down to Atlanta because I knew I needed to give him the chance to chew me out. Are we just dinosaurs? Yeah, but that's not necessarily a bad thing, though. I remember that exchange on Twitter. I don't, I don't think you wouldn't all that, but you had you had mentioned some yeah. things about it. I think I tweeted. I think I tweeted uh, back at you saying, you know, hey, man, keep fighting the good fight. One dinosaur to another. I try not to talk about how other writers do their jobs or other journalists do their jobs. But that is so over the top that like, how can, how can you cover that person and that team? Not objectively again, because I don't believe in objectivity. I believe in fairness, but how can you even, when, when, when you have a, a, the, the coach taking a picture with your family, when you are praising him as being a blessing I believe that was the term that was used. Yeah. Okay. If something goes south or something untoward happens and he's involved, like how how can you report on that? I mean, you you if you you're calling someone a blessing, someone who you are are say she's a news anchor and sports anchor, and look, I get it. You know, like these little co- these college towns. You know, um, there are a lot of newspaper writers who through the years have. You know, they want to they want to be buddies with the coach. And I mean, even, you know, not just little places like I remember the uh, the columnist at the uh, Minneapolis Star Tribune was really tight with Bobby Knight. I think, you know, what I'm talking about. Yeah. And, you know, so that that has happened in history, but it doesn't make it right whenever it happens. But like, again, th- that is so over the top. It's like no one from her station is like, well, people develop relationships. But posing for pictures with your parents and a blessing and how kind and, and I mean it's just I don't I don't know how you do the job I don't know how you you know look they're living a charmed existence right there now in Colorado but the reality of it is the bottom could fall out of that thing and if it does and when the bottom falls out of things that's when chaos starts and how do you cover chaos if you say that the person who's presiding over it is a blessing. I don't know how you, I don't, I don't know how, how you function in that environment. And also the reporter in me says, okay, he's been here for X amount of time. And this would be any coach, any player. I don't know him yet. Like, I don't know him. I don't know his tactics. I don't know. He might be the best coach ever. Deion Sanders might be one of the all-time great college football coaches. It's certainly possible, but I don't know yet. 
And I feel like as a reporter, whether you're TV or print or whatever, it's kind of your job to find out and play the long game. And I just, and also like the posing for pictures with subjects thing is makes my skin crawl. Yeah, I know you might disagree with me. It really oh, no, 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 no. You know, like, um, you know, I remember coming up like people, like when I was covering the Dodgers, like friends of mine, well, why don't you take any pictures with them? You know, can you like, no, that's not, that's not what, that's not what it's about. I'm not, it, it, I'm not trying to enhance my cred because I know these guys, like I have a job to do and the taking the pictures again, I'm not, I don't comment or criticize other people do their jobs, but it, you take a picture with somebody it, it it really says something about what your thought process is about that person in relation to you. Since my beat writer days have been over, like I, I have, like I've had people ask to take pictures with me sometimes. Um, but it, it's, it's something that I, I've probably only done it in, in a 30 year career. I've probably done it once or twice, never with an athlete or coach who I was covering. There are people who I used to cover, like Alex Core, the the general, the uh, the manager of the Boston Red Sox. I covered AC when he was a player, and you know, thirty years down the line, you know, we're at some place. That's one thing. But when you're in it, and you know, the other thing too is, no matter how well you think you know these people, and no matter how long you cover them, you don't know them. You don't know what happens when they go home. You know, I, I, the Kobe Bryant situation that that happened um, in in Denver. Eagle. You know, I remember people at the time say, oh, you know, Kobe couldn't have done that. I mean, I'm talking about reporters. Yeah, of course. Say that, you know, that Kobe couldn't have done that. It's like, like, first of all, you, you can't say that. We don't know these people. Okay. We're not, we're not their family members. You know, we're not, we're not their friends, even though some, some people think that they are like, you don't know. And so like, and especially like he's been there, what, like six months now. Yeah. You know, anyway, that's my, Oh, so I just, I honestly, as I've gotten older, I've really thought about this more and more. When I was a young baseball writer, it definitely made me nervous going into a clubhouse. And the power dynamic, I felt the power dynamic, that it was 80% them, 20% me. But as you do this longer and longer, you really stop viewing them as special or up here, and they're just people you cover. And that should be the power dynamic, is I'm Jeff, I'm a reporter, you're Bob, you're an athlete. I'm asking you questions. You're answering the questions and that's a dynamic. And when you start taking pictures with them, it throws that power dynamic way out of whack. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that is the biggest thing that throws it out of whack because once you do that, what is, what it signifies to them is, okay, I've got this person. Yep. They're so enamored uh, with me. They're so enraptured with me, so to speak, that their thing is, well, I got, I got to be seen. Like I have to let people know that I know this person. And when you do that, I mean, how do you, if even Colorado wins all of its games this year and everything is perfect. And we know that's not going to be the case because that's not the way things work unless you're at Georgia or, you know, or Alabama, but there could come a time when you have to report on something. You now have no credibility with the people who you need to have credibility with your viewers or your readers. Because your viewers and your readers know that, well, you're in the tank. Yep. So, you know, anyway. Yeah, I'm with you 100%. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my wife, Catherine. How's it going? Casey's friend, Anna, has been here for a long time. Ugh, I know. She kind of smells like turpentine. And she hears everything. Hey, what are you guys talking about? Oh, uh... 
Just RoyalRetros.com, the sponsor of my podcast. Oh, is that the place that does throwback sports jerseys and hats and t-shirts? I love everything they make, and your podcast is dope. I listen three times a day. Who knew Alan Shipnuck was already working on a new book? And do you think Candace Buckner stays at the Post? Well, I guess she can stay. Let me ask you a question. You had a uh, you had a book come out last year, Rise of the Black Quarterback. You and I both appeared at the LA Times Festival of Books. And we were on a panel together. That was delightful. And um, every now and then there's a book that comes out and I'm like, ah, oh, that would have been a good one to do. So I'm actually glad you did it. I think it's a great subject. And one of the guys you focus on was Marlon Briscoe, who is the now the late Marlon Briscoe, sadly, but who is really the first black professional quarterback, played for the Broncos when they were in the AFL. He played way back in 1968, Nebraska, Omaha. And you sit down with him for lunch. You interview him over lunch. He knows you're doing this book. This is a real soup to nuts question, but when you sit down with someone for a book or a long feature and you are there in the moment, what is going through your mind? What are the preparations you make to make sure you utilize the most of this hour and a half lunch with Marlon Briscoe? You want to find as many people going into that type of interview who who can tell you as much information as possible about that person before you sit down with them. And so like what I did was I went and I got old newspaper clippings. I went to a library from from, uh, the the Denver papers at the time and read up about the tryout that they gave him. A lot of the people who could have given me firsthand anecdotes are no longer with us. So I read his book. He actually put out a book um, many years ago called The Magician. I read the book. I looked up the the, the articles uh, from when he got his tryout. Basically, that whole season that that he that he played as quarterback, I read a bunch of stuff about that. He went on to play for the Miami Dolphins as a wide receiver. So I talked to people who were still around, teammates with him. He played on a shoeless undefeated team, and so there's still people around from that. I got an old media guide um, that a friend of mine who's like a football historian had, and I just went through it and I started looking for names of yeah. people who might still be around. And not everybody wanted to talk to me. You know, I mean, Marlon had a period in his life where he was addicted to drugs and people, especially friends of people are like, well, I don't want to, you know, if this thing isn't authorized and that type of thing. But after the interview, he told friends of his who I had reached out to previously, he told them they could talk to me. So, you know, you go into it trying to get as much information as you possibly can about the person so that you can ask the most informed questions as possible. The book is great. I just want to say, and like a really important book. And I know people always use that adjective for books. And then you see the book two years later on the dollar shelf. It happens to us all, but like it was, it was great. Um, Let me ask you a final, final question. Yeah. I am required to ask this of every guest on this podcast and you, I'm sure have good answers. What, um, what is the best confrontation you've had in your career with an athlete or coach or GM? What's your money moment? Oh my God, dude, this is so easy. So uh, wait, John Rocker makes it a high bar. I just want to say, listen, after I tell after I tell you this, you tell me if it's a push. OK, OK. All right. So the Dodgers had this player named Milton Bradley. Oh, come on, man. Of course. Yeah. And um, I'll never forget when they traded for him. I believe they got him from Cleveland. Very talented player. But, you know, yeah. So I'll never forget when um. I was in the clubhouse and Dave Roberts, who's now the Dodgers manager, had a really good relationship with Dave, one of my favorite players of all time. Um, My thing is, whenever anybody would come to the team or 
it, someone who I didn't know, like in spring training, I would introduce myself. I'd say, you know what, what I do. And if we develop a relationship, I, I would always let them know, look, I will always be fair with you. I will always do my best to be fair with you, but I do have a job to do. And I'll never forget this. So I was walking up to Milton Bradley the day he gets there. I just have to emphasize yeah. everyone in baseball knew Milton Bradley was batshit crazy and dynamite with someone flicking a spark by the wick. So go ahead. Yeah. So Dave kind of waved me over because he saw he like, Jay, don't don't even waste your time. I was like, what do you mean? Because he knew what I did whenever I a new player came to me. I said, he said, yeah, just trust me and just, just leave me. And I, and I said, come on, man. And I went up to him and I introduced myself and he shook my hand. Well, the season goes on and like he had these like incidents, I mean, volatile temper and like things would, you know, happen. And I remember there's one, the fans were shouting at him. I mean, Dodger fans were like shouting at him one time and just, but he's, he's a talented player. He was a talented player. So anyway, the team clinches the NL, the NL West, I believe. And they, um, they're playing St. Louis uh, in the playoffs. And we're in St. Louis. I'm the lead Dodger beat writer. But for the playoffs, you know, you, you have a ton of people who are added to the coverage. And we're all on the road. Well, forget which game it was, but it was an off day. So on the off day, that's when all the reporters go get off day stories. You know, they, they write about, like, what's going on, where the series is at. I had, like, worked, like, 75 straight days with some ridiculous number. And... The baseball, it was like, look, you take today off. My backup at the time was supposed to go to the stadium and get another story. But the, he got sick and he's like, could I go? And I was like, sure, man, you know, just stay in the hotel. I'll go. Well, I go and Milton, Milton had had, if, if I recall correctly, and you might be able to call this up. If you Google my name and Milton Bradley, it'll come up. Okay. Um, Milton had a situation where I think the fans in St. Louis were getting on him. And the fans in Los Angeles had gotten on him earlier in the season. And so I asked him about it. And man, I, I, it, and I wasn't the only one. I, I, th I think I was the one who asked the question, but it was in a scrum. And um, he went off. He started calling me an Uncle Tom. He was telling me that... People told him not to trust me, and they kept calling me Uncle Tom. And, you know, I don't know if, if your listeners views your podcast and understand this, but to call a black man an Uncle Tom. Yeah, not good. It's not good. <laughs> and, um, you know, I was much younger than I am now, obviously. And, this is um, 2004, I, just so people listening. So 19 years ago. Yeah, 19 years ago. I did not react well. One black man can't say that to another black man without knowing we're going to come to blows. Now, look. Milton Bradley could have probably killed me. I'm just being candid about that. But as a man, I could not have another black man in a locker room full of people calling me an Uncle Tom. Now, look, you got to understand, there are a lot of players on that team who respected me, who knew what I was about. And, um, I mean, Jeff, I lost it. Like, I'll be, I'll be honest with you, like, I lost it to the point where I didn't black out. But I can't tell you everything that happened because I was so blinded with rage and um, multiple people were holding me back and he was still taunting me. And again, like he could have killed me, I'm sure, but I, I completely lost it. And what wound up happening was a couple of the Dodger players took me out of the locker room and well, dragged me. 
a couple of the coaches dragged me out of the locker room. Um, this is all. And the great thing about this was it was all on videotape because it was a Fox. There was a Fox Midwest crew filming the whole thing. Dodger players are, are buck naked coming out the shower because everybody's like, what's going on out here? They're naked. This is all on camera. There are Dodger team officials and executives coming out to try to find out what's going on. And uh, I, I'm dragged out of the locker room. And this thing made national news. I mean, it was it was it was yeah. everywhere. So, you know, it was really bad. There were people who were definitely concerned about my well-being and about the fact that, you know, I was insulted and what have you. But one of the concerns was they didn't want Major League Baseball suspending Milton Bradley because, God forbid, they suspended him and the team lost the series. They were going to blame many fans would have blamed me LA Times. Right. Um, and I didn't want the guy to get suspended either. It was my first real understanding about how politics can work in sports and things that, you know, go on in the background. Um, so they made they made Milton apologize to me. We met in the bowels of old Bush Stadium. It was me, him, and I believe one or two Dodger officials. He reluctantly extended his hand. I reluctantly extended mine. Uh, totally perfunctory. We, we, I mean, not, neither one of us wanted to be there, but I understood why I had to be there, and he understood he didn't want to get suspended, so he did it. But um, it was, it was really, really bad. And what made it worse was I thought I might get fired because. I get again, Fox Sports Midwest. I don't even know if it exists anymore, but the whole thing was filmed. I mean, and so I'm thinking, you know, like I couldn't remember all the things I did. I didn't, I didn't remember whether I grabbed anything or I just, but um, what happened was one of the Dodger executives went to the Fox Sports Midwest people and said, give me that tape right now. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now here's the thing. Shouldn't have given up that tape, like from a journalism standpoint. Oh, horrible. Yeah. yeah shouldn't, have, shouldn't have given up that tape. Um, and what the executive told me later was there were so many naked players being filmed oh. that even if they had edited, you know, with you know, dark circles or something, that it was just not something they could have allowed to have been aired. It was it wasn't that they were trying like they knew what the guy did was wrong. He should have called me an Uncle Tom because he was upset about a question I asked. But I was not paramount in their concerns. What was paramount in their concerns was that there were like 15 naked men coming out of shower to see what was going on. And they were just standing there being filmed the whole time. Um, I do believe, though, that the cameraman who gave up the tape got fired, if I remember correctly. You definitely win. That's amazing. Number one, I'm looking at the account in the LA Times. I love this. You're an Uncle Tom. You're a sellout, Bradley said, according to the tape. As the discussion grew more heated, Bradley said, where's a bottle at? And Reed said, you're going to throw a bottle at me now, Milton? I mean, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, I, I remember the, that was the last thing I remembered because I was like, because I think what had happened was the bottle reference was that fans in Los Angeles had thrown like trash at them or something. Two thoughts. Number one, I'm begging you now, begging you, next year for Anscape to do a 20th anniversary thing and track down Milton Bradley. I think it, wait, would it be 20 years? Yeah, I think that'd be an okay. amazing story. I swear to God, like I've always wanted to track down John Rocker, but he won't have anything to do with me. But I bet if you called Milton Bradley, there's a, he's on his meds and everything, there's a 50% chance. He's like, yeah, let's talk about that. That was crazy. And number two, 
I feel like you missed a real golden opportunity, which is one of the great heroes in journalism is Will McDonough because he punched Raymond Claiborne in the Patriots locker room and became basically a hero to us all for decades and yep. decades. I remember that, yeah. I feel like you missed your, missed your chance there, Jason. Well, well, here's the thing, though, Jeff. Like, Milton Bradley was like, he had like, you know, minus 50% body fat. Yeah, I know. He, the dude was chiseled. He's probably five to six inches taller than me. Um, it doesn't go well. No. Oh, no. I mean, he, he, here's the thing. Like, you know, what, what's that old line about um, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face? <laughs> like, like that, what, that's what would have happened. And um, I don't think he'll talk to me. I, I, let me put it this way. I think you have a better chance of getting rocker than I have a better chance of talking to Milton Bradley. Wow. It would have been amazing if he punched you and then you said, where's a bottle at? You could have been the one. You could have turned it on him. Where's the bottle at? You know what? Here's the thing. If he had punched me, I could have retired. That's what I always say about Rocker. You and I could be on freaking yachts right now, sipping martinis. and Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, Jason, I mean, seriously, I'm a long time, long time admirer. I'm Same glad here, it's the longest we've ever talked. I love this stuff so much. I think your career is truly great. And like, I like talking to other guys who I feel like have a real journalistic sensibility and really love this profession and sort of stand by it. And uh, so thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Listen, man, I appreciate you and like Mutual Admiration Society. And uh, I appreciate you, man. And I hope I didn't say anything that's going to get me in a lot of trouble. But if I only if Milton Bradley, only if Milton Bradley listens, (laughs) maybe I think you're safe on that. I want to thank today's guest, Jason Reed, for joining me on Two Riders Sling and Yang. You can follow Jason on Twitter at JReedESPN and read his work at Anscape. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Sling and Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I'd be really appreciative. Music is by the amazing MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me. Remember, keep riding.